This message was recorded at Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our goal is to faithfully preach the Word of God for the salvation of sinners, the strengthening of believers, and the glory of God. Please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org and listen for more information at the conclusion of this message. Uh, would you all turn with me to, uh, to Matthew 18? Uh, that will be the scripture reading this morning. Uh, we'll start... Starting uh, chapter 18, we'll start in verse 1 and read down through verse 14. Uh, the first couple of verses may look familiar. We, we read them in the last service, but we're going to go back and read them again. 1 through, 1 through 14 in Matthew 18. Would you all stand? <clears throat> At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him if a milestone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offenses come. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It's better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it's better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine to go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly, I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Heavenly Father, we... Thank you, Lord. Uh, thank you for bringing us here again and granting us uh, this time together. And we do look to you, Lord, uh, as just as we've been talking about, for enablement to do what we are instructed to uh, to do here and to be. Lord, that you would make us like uh, children in the ways that you would have it be so. Uh, Lord, may we uh, learn to trust in you as we should. Lord, may our lives be devoted uh, to Your glory through trusting You and through that manifesting in our lives. May we live in in a manner uh, in which is characterized by our efforts to build one another up and help each other grow and mature in the faith. Again, so through it all, Your name is glorified so that Your love and Your grace is put on display through Your people for the world to see. And we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. 
Amen. Be seated. <clears throat> Amen. Appreciate that, Zach. And, and Dan, thanks for the help. And Dominic, I'll pay you later. I'm going to put him on the payroll. Might get him to do that, you know, periodically throughout the sermon. Good job, good job. <laughs> okay. Uh, all right, I want to... Um, I asked Zach to go back and reread uh, the first few verses because all, all of this really, uh, we are having, having to take it in sections, but it, it, it all goes together. And I just want us to remember where we're at in the context of uh, Jesus' teaching here and discussion. And, and it's, uh, I, I think, going to be very, very helpful to us. Um, I'm just going to try to. Uh, Outline this real simply, and I'm going to take a little different twist, by the way, than uh, not totally, but but pretty much than what what you have in the bulletin. I, I do want us to have in mind verse 11 here, which is why Jesus came. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. But I'm, I'm changing the, uh, the the focus a little bit here. I want to talk about what I what I I'm going to call an, an essential characteristic of the true disciple or the true follower of Christ. In fact, I, I, was, I just really came close to putting the key <laughs> characteristic. I mean, it's that important. But we're going to at least call it essential. It's essential characteristic to true discipleship. Um, and and these, those two things really do go together because what, what we have to do in order to live out this essential characteristic that we're going to talk about in a minute is uh, is remember why Jesus came and and be motivated by that to uh, to imitate him that is our our purpose in life has to be what his is you know, his, his purpose and like for example he says here son of man has come to save that which was lost his purpose has to become our purpose if you want to call it a mission statement, then His mission statement has to become our mission statement as we live in this world. And we're going to see as we move through here that it doesn't just apply to evangelism. That verse 11, I mean, doesn't just apply to evangelism. In fact, um, this verse is very similar to Luke, uh, I believe it's Luke 19.10 that if you remember when we were working our way through Luke, uh, from the very beginning all the way through the book, I kept referring you to that one verse as the central, uh, central verse, the main theme of Luke's uh, message. Um, whoop, wrong page here. Luke says, or Jesus says in Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Now, here in Matthew, it's worded this way, worded a little differently. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. And I think actually has a different meaning here. And we'll come back to that. Um, but first, let's, let's, uh, let's start with this. What is this essential characteristic of Christian discipleship? Christian uh, To be a follower of Christ, in other words, this is a, this is a characteristic that we must 
have. And it is humility. Humility. Um, some time ago, probably at least a year ago, I, I handed out to all the men in the church a book on humility. And, uh, uh, you know, ho- hopefully they weren't offended by that. Like, <laughs> you know, when you get somebody something like that, here, read this book on humility. Um, <laughs> that can look kind of funny, you know. But uh, it, it, the book was just so good, such a blessing. And, uh, and frankly, uh, I, I need it for sure. And, and I really don't have much problem telling somebody else they need it also because, because we all do. Uh, I, I don't think anybody's exempt from that. I mean, I've seen some humble people, but uh, can always be more humble because we're all, we're all sinners. And, and the more we become like Christ, <clears throat> the more humble we will be. Well, um, so, so the first thing is just the necessity of humility. And why do I say that it's essential? Which is, is the same as to say it's a necessity. It's, it's essential to the Christian life. It's an essential characteristic of, of the Christian life. So it's a necessity. It has to be there. Why do I say that? Well, because in these, in these first few verses, and I want to read again quickly verses 1 through 5, Remember, this, this began with a dispute among the disciples. Um, and, and, and by the way, Matthew kind of skips over that here. That information comes from, uh, I believe it's Mark's account, where he describes the dispute in Mark chapter 9. Um, but it began with a dispute among the disciples of who would be the greatest in the kingdom. So there's a lot of pride at work here. A lot of self-exaltation at play. Now, I don't know if it's because Jesus just told him he's going to die. That, that, would, be, uh, that would be pretty bad, wouldn't it? You know, I mean, he, says, he says, I'm going to suffer and die. And so they all start thinking about who's next in line. Uh, but it may be that that's what provoked it. Maybe because of his mention of the resurrection and they're just thinking about, uh, although they, we know they didn't fully understand these things, uh, maybe they're they're trying to figure it out, and they're thinking, okay, now when he does set up the kingdom, who's going to be not necessarily the successor, but who's going to be next in line? Who's going to be um, second in authority? And they're actually disputing this, and they come to Jesus here, uh, according to Matthew's account in verse one, asking this question: Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And here's here's how Jesus responds, and this is. So important to, to all of this discussion. Here's how Jesus responds. He called, verse 2, Jesus called a little child to him and set him in the midst of them and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, now did you get that? He put that as a condition. Unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Here you are. Worrying about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus is saying, I'm telling you, you're not even going to get in unless you're converted. That is to turn, like I talked about last week. We're not talking about, it's not conversion in the sense of being saved here. The, the word here just means to turn. So he's saying, what you've got to do, here you, here you are arguing about who's going to be the greatest. In other words, you're, you're walking in selfishness and pride. That is what your life is characterized by. 
That's the road you're on. That's the direction you're going. Now, what you've got to do is a U-turn. That's what the word converted means here. You've got to turn. About face. You're, you're living for self. You're headed down a road of selfishness. You must make an about face, a U-turn, and become as this little child. Now, I'm going to skip over uh, some of the reasons why, because we did talk about that last week, you know, how a, uh, a child is, is trusting and so forth, uh, more so than an adult. Uh, just to kind of sum it up, I'll just say that. You, you could sum it up probably with the word trust. That's what Jesus wants us to be like, totally dependent, totally trusting with Him and upon Him. So, verse 4, he goes on, he, he expounds. Now, remember what he's just told them. You've got to turn, you've got to do a U-turn, an about-face, Change directions. Well, what does that mean? Verse 4 tells us. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So, like I mentioned last week, Jesus sets before them a, a living you know, illustration here. He, he, he grabs a little child, sets the little child there and says, um, you want to be great? Uh, you want, to, in fact, you want to get in. You want, you want to enter the kingdom of heaven. You've got to be converted. You've got to turn and be like this little child. What does that mean? You must humble yourself. Verse four. Whoever humbles himself as this little child. And that's why I say it's essential. Because unless you do this, unless you become humble as a little child, verse three says, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So it's 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 a condition. It's essential for. Um, interest into the kingdom of heaven. So it is, a, it is a characteristic, I think it's safe to say, that marks every Christian. <laughs> Not a lot of amens on that. You know what? Some of us don't display it very well. Uh, and some of us need more work on it than others do. But... Uh, it, it has to be there because, first of all, you will never even come to Christ and surrender unless there is uh, that level of humility that, that would bring you to the point that you surrender and say, you know, I, I need a, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. God help me. So it's there, although oftentimes it's very well veiled. Okay, But that doesn't get us off the hook. And that's what I want us to see this morning. We say, well, if you say every Christian's got it, then I'm a Christian, then I must be okay. I must be humble. Well, there's two possibilities. One is, you're not really a Christian. You know, you think you are. That's the most dangerous, obviously. And so, you can say, well, you know, I'm saved, so I must be humble, because you, it's a, you, you're pointing out here that it's an essential characteristic, and so therefore I'm good to go. Well, the, the possibility number one is that you're deceived. And the reason there's not a display of humility in your life is because you're not at all a Christian. There's a second possibility, and that has to do with, like we've been talking about in Sunday school, that has to do with growth, with sanctification. Uh, and so, as I said a moment ago, you, even to surrender to Christ, that requires a level of humility. But that doesn't mean that uh, from that point on, we just live a perfect life of humility in, in all of our relationships. In fact, even though it's, it's quite uh, 
hypocritical. Uh, we can humble ourselves. At least this is what we think we're doing. We can humble ourselves before the Lord. You know, we, we get in church service or we get before the Lord in prayer and we humble ourselves before Him. And then we go out and deal with other people and we're just full of pride and selfishness. And so, let's just assume there that we're truly saved, but we're just not where we should be in humility, then all of this is going to apply to us as well. So, there, there are the two possibilities. One is you're deceived, you're not really saved. And the second one is um, you're saved, but you need to grow. And I promise you, even if you're pretty mature in regards to humility, you still need to grow. There's room to grow. I promise you there's nobody here that's as humble as Jesus and, and that is our goal. He's the standard. So that's, that's who we want to look to as, as a standard. I've, I've known some humble men who I admired and looked up to, but at the same time, Jesus is the standard, not them. Alright, so it's, it's a necessity. It, it is an essential characteristic to the Christian life, humility. So Jesus says in verse 4, Whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of of heaven. He's saying, here's, here's how you become great. You become humble. You become a servant, other places say. And by the way, Philippians 2 says that's exactly what Jesus did. And that's why Paul says in Philippians 2, uh, to the, to the, uh, uh, Philippians, let this mind, uh, like this mindset, this attitude, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. He humbled himself. In fact, literally, um, emptied himself of his glory. Verse 5, Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Now, here's where it gets tricky, and I want to try to explain this um, quickly but carefully. Verse 5, Jesus says, "Whoever, Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. I don't want to be confusing here, but I want to be honest. You know, at, at first glance, first reading, you know, just reading over it, uh, I'm, I'm thinking, obviously, he's, he, when he says this little child, he's talking about the little child he's holding in front of him. Don't, don't forget that. He's got, he, he has put a child in the midst and says, you must become like this little child. And then I got to looking at it and comparing other passages, and, and, uh, which I'll share in a moment, but I came to a different conclusion. And I thought, you know what, I think... He's, he's using this child now in the form of a type. So, if I can paraphrase it, um, just paraphrase it this way for explanation, it would be something like this, verse 5. Um, or verse 4 says, Whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so, verse 5 paraphrase would be, Whoever has done this, whoever has humbled himself as this little child, this is, I'm sorry, whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Um, so whoever has done this, whoever has humbled himself, becomes a little child. And whoever receives such a one, that is one who has humbled himself like a little child, receives me. So in other words, verse 5 and beyond, which we'll see as we go down, uh, verse 5 and beyond is talking about Christians. Not the literal child. Whoever receives one little child like this, like what? Well, verse 4 says, Therefore, whoever humbles himself, 
as a little child. Whoever. Any, any of you people who humble yourself like a little child. Now, verse 5, whoever does this, whoever, whoever receives one of these who has done this, one who has humbled himself as a little child, whoever receives such a one in my name receives me. Does that make sense? I hope it does. In other words, if, at this point, he's using the child as a type, but now he's talking about believers, not literal little children. Okay? So he's saying, in other words, again, to paraphrase, whoever receives a believer in my name receives me. Whoever receives someone who has humbled themselves in this way, and again, I'm just paraphrasing, rewording it just for the sake of explanation, but whoever receives someone who has humbled himself in this way, if you receive them in my name, you receive me. Let me give you one passage that we dealt with weeks ago that I think uh, helps back this up. And there are, there's some in the text as well. Um, the text before us. But first, look at Matthew 10 quickly. Verse uh, verse 40, this is where Jesus sent the disciples out and gave them power and authority to cast out demons and heal the sick. And then He goes through a whole explanation of how they're going to endure persecution. But, He says in verse 40, He who receives you receives Me. Now notice, that is almost identical language to what Jesus says in Matthew 18. Except here, in, in this part, He doesn't refer to them as a little child. He who receives you receives Me, and he who receives Me receives him who sent Me. But then He does in verse 42 say, And whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of water in the name of a disciple, assuredly, I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. He promises reward for those who treat His disciples well. And in verse 42, He refers to them as little ones. Now, you have to, again, go back to read all of chapter 10 to see clearly who He's talking about. But He's talking about the disciples there. He's sending them out and saying, you're going you're to face a lot of persecution, but whoever receives you, receives Me. And whoever receives you, in verse 32, he calls them one of these little ones. Whoever receives you will by no means lose their reward. Alright? Now back to Matthew 18. Um, verse 5 again. I, th- I think there's evidence also here in the text, that uh, here in this text, that he, again, he's talking about the disciples at this point, believers. So, verse 5, whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me, meaning whoever receives one who has turned and become as a little child, someone who believes in me, if you receive them in my name, you, you receive me. Same thing he says in Matthew 10.40. Look at verse 6. But whoever causes one of these little ones... Now, that's essentially the same... Uh, Languages, verse 5, whoever receives one little child like this. But in verse 6, instead of calling them a little child, he calls them little ones. The same terminology he uses in Matthew 10:42. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me. Now, see, he's, he's, he's talking about all believers, I think, here. Now, interestingly enough... Um, 
So you don't think I'm going way out on a limb. Uh, I, I, you know, always I, I try to check myself out on these things, and this is um, another benefit to using uh, commentaries and, and, and things of that sort. Because if I'm interpreting a passage one way, and I go back and look at people like Calvin or even modern day teachers like MacArthur and you know whoever. And I go and I go back and I look at these guys, what they've written on the subject, and they're all pretty much consistently coming to a different conclusion than me. Then that ought to send up a red flag. I mean, it's possible. I want to keep the theme of humility here, but it's it's possible that I could be right and they are all wrong. But I'm just going to be honest with you. I usually seriously doubt that. And, and when I think that is the case, and I've done this many times, when I think that is the case, I, I tell you. And uh, so far, you know, I haven't been run out on a rail or anything, but, but there have been times where I've said, look, what I'm, what I'm fixing to explain to you, uh, pretty much nobody agrees with. <laughs> but so I'll let you know that so you can check, kind of check it out too. But the ones that I checked... Like Brodus and Calvin and MacArthur and uh, there were others I can't think of at the moment, but consistently they said Jesus is referring to believers here, not literal children. Okay, and and I think that's correct. Um, but you can keep both in mind and 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 apply them as we work our way through here in the few minutes that we have left. Uh, either way, it is uh, uh, what he's saying here is very important. Okay, so. So now we're talking about believers. Jesus says, whoever sees one little child like this, meaning believers, whoever sees a Christian, a believer, in my name, receives me. But, here's where we come to the second part. The necessity of humility. Now, secondly, a warning against offenders. A warning against offenders. But, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... Now, he's going to issue a warning here that goes um, pretty much all the way down to verse 11. It, it shifts things a little bit. But he's, he's going to in, issue a warning here about offenses and offenders. And I want us to remember what that is. Um, if you've got an old King James, it just uses the word uh, offend, I think, I think consistently. But the idea is causing someone to sin. And so that's why if you're looking at a, a modern version, it's probably going to be phrased uh, somewhat like that. Um, so, for example, uh, verse 6, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. Now, you can take that word causes and, and that phrase to sin. That's actually one word in the Greek. And so the, the old King James captures that by keeping it in one word, offend, whoever offends. But, it, but it, 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 it's tougher to understand the meaning with that. Because it does mean uh, not just upsetting you, you know, but causing you to sin. The word literally, is, it's, it's the, uh, I've explained before, it's the word we get our word scandal from. But it literally means the stick... <laughs> That is the trigger to a trap. Now, when I was a kid, we uh, uh, 
the first 14 years of my life, we lived in the city, but we had a vacant lot behind us that was a pretty good-sized lot and was wooded because it had been empty for a long time. So that was the woods, you know, that I grew up playing in at that point. And uh, there, there probably wasn't anything out there but lizards and, uh, you know, stuff like that. But, uh, but we would sometimes, you know, with our big ideas and stuff, set traps. And you, you'd take some kind of box... Maybe just a cardboard box. I mean, because we, we, were, we were pretty brilliant, you know. I mean, we, uh, these are elaborate. I mean, don't try this at home type thing. <laughs> we prop a box up on a stick and tie a string to the stick. <laughs> and then sit there and watch it like something's actually going to walk in there while you're watching. But just in case, you know, you're ready and you can, yank the, you can yank the stick out from under the box and the box falls and you got it. We never caught anything, but... That's what this word means. That stick that holds the box, the trigger for the trap. That's what this Greek word means. Whoever is or becomes or sets before somebody a trigger, a stick that is a trigger for a trap, you, you, do, you, you act in such a way that you ensnare somebody. You cause somebody to be ensnared by sin. You, that's what it means to offend them in this passage. We saw it with Jesus. Remember, Jesus said He was going to die. And Peter said, Not so, not you, Lord. And Jesus said, You're an offense to Me. Peter, get behind Me, Satan. You're an offense to Me. Why? Because... You're setting a trap for me. You're trying to trigger a, a trap for me. You're trying to divert me from God's will. I'm telling you, I'm going, I'm going to suffer at the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and rise again the third day for the glory of God. And you're telling me, no way, not you, Lord. You're, you're trying to cause me to sin. That's what Jesus is saying. You're an offense to me. And by the way, that's, that's really where this whole um, thought started out. And that's back in chapter 16, verse 21. And then you see the, first, the, you know, the use of this word scandal or offense. Um, in verse 23, Get behind me, Satan, you are an offense to me. 16.23 why? Because you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. And then Jesus goes on to talking about how you have to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Him. And, and Peter was, you know, Peter was trying to divert Jesus from doing God's will. He's triggering a trap for him. So that's the meaning of the word here, and it's used repeatedly. So verse six, for example, whoever causes one of these little ones, that is believers, whoever causes a believer in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. He's, he's promising judgment, severe judgment, for those who offend Christians. That is, that is, again, remember the meaning of the word, for those who cause believers to sin. The word millstone there means um, 
I, I don't have a good picture of this. Well, I've got a decent one because we saw one of these in Arizona, probably similar to what they were using in the first century. But it's, the, it's an upper millstone that had to be, the thing was so big that it had to be moved by a donkey. You know, they tie a donkey to it. And we saw one of these out in Arizona. I don't even remember what it was you know, being specifically used for there, but it was at, at a, some old cowboy town thing, uh, you know, uh, ruins or whatever it was. Um, but the, the thing is huge, huge. And so they have to have a donkey to move it. And Jesus is saying, it would be better for you to have one of those stones strapped to you and thrown in the sea than that you should offend a believer. And that tells us a lot, doesn't it, about God's concern for His people, His love for His people, His determination to keep us and keep us safe. And it also tells us a lot about how He feels about sin. In fact, verse 7, He pronounces what is called an oracle of woe. If you read the Old Testament, you see this quite often. I've been reading through Ezekiel, and Ezekiel is just... Constantly, you know, woe to the people of Israel or woe to the Egyptians or woe to the Babylonians and so forth. That's an oracle of woe. That is God speaking judgment. And Jesus is doing this here. Verse 7, Woe to the world because of offenses. It's the same word again. For offenses must come. I hate to gloss over that, but we're not, I'm not going to spend a lot of time there except to say, um, and one reason I'm not is because I think this is one of the things that's hidden in the mystery. It's a mystery. Hidden in the mind of God. There must be offenses. Why? Because Jesus said so. Verse 7. Woe to the world because of offenses. For offenses must come. But woe to that man by whom the offense comes. So he says, woe to the world because of offenses. And he's either, he's either directly pronouncing judgment on unbelievers because of their offenses, or he's, it's just a form of lamentation. He's saying, you know, alas, woe to them because of offenses. In other words, they're going to suffer consequences. So, it would be somewhat like him weeping over Jerusalem because they missed the day of his visitation. But either way, it's, it's, it's a prophecy of judgment for offenses. And then he pronounces, woe upon the man who causes them. And this is similar language to, as to what he uses concerning Judas when he's talking to Pilate. Better for him that he had not been born. He's serious about his... Hatred of offenses. That is, causing people to sin, to stumble. So serious, verse 8, that he gives a very graphic illustration. And when Jordan read it last night, we were reading this, and Jordan read it, and she stopped and she said something. At the end of it, she stopped and said something like, uh, whoa, or, or something to that effect. And wanted to know what it means. I mean, it's pretty graphic, isn't it? Verse 8, if your hand or foot causes you to sin, there's the word again, causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell 
fire. Notice the wording of verse 8, everlasting fire. The, the judgment he's pronouncing here, he's saying the condemnation, the punishment is eternal. And offenses causing someone to sin, offenses are so serious that he's saying it would be better if, if, if they could be avoided this way. It would be better for you to cut off parts of your body and go into eternal life lame or maimed than to wind up in hell, which is, he's saying, that's, that's where they lead. I want to say this quickly. He, he, I think a simple explanation and accurate is, and we, deal, we dealt with this back in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, so I just want to mention it here. But Jesus is using hyperbole. He doesn't want you cutting off your hand. Although, I don't want to take anything away from the truth of it. In other words, he, it would definitely be better to pluck out an eye or to cut off a hand than to burn eternally in hell. That's, that is absolutely true. But I think what Jesus is doing here is using hyperbole to make a point. In other words, he's not, we don't have any record in the New Testament anybody plucking their eyes out and cutting their hands off. That's not what he, he's not telling them to do that. He's just emphatically making a point, saying you must deal with sin in your life drastically to get rid of it. If something is leading you into sin, get rid of it. If you are causing someone else to sin, you better, you better deal with that drastically. Take drastic measures. He's just saying it's that serious. It is that serious. If, if you offend a believer, he's saying the consequences are serious and eternal. Now, verse 10, Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. Again, I think a reference to all believers. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. I want to read one reference there. Uh, I, I do not think this is a reference to uh, guardian angels. Uh, you know, the idea that every person has a angel appointed to them, uh, frankly, I don't think has any support in Scripture. Um, but, uh, but angels do uh, serve us. You know, part of the way that they carry out God's will is by serving us. So an example of that is Hebrews 1.14. Um, well, here we go. Hebrews 1.14. Speaking about angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? God uses them in some ways that are mysterious to us. Uh, and uh, so, um, the, the angels that minister to those who will inherit the kingdom of heaven um, always behold the face of the Father, Luke uh, Matthew says here, Jesus says here in, in Matthew. So he says, take heed. Do not despise one of these. Now, 
here's verse 11, I think, brings out the contrast between a life of pride, self-seeking, selfishness, and the Christian life. A life given to service of others. And that little word for, F-O-R, interesting. I mean, Jesus is expounding on all of this. For, verse 11, For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. Now, if you live in such a way, if you scandalize, if you offend, if you cause people to sin because of your own selfishness, or your own pride, then you're actually living in such a way that would, that would bring about their destruction. It's, it's as though you are seeking their destruction. And so, Jesus is saying, you, you've got to humble yourself. Remember what the disciples were doing. They were disputing over who's going to be the greatest. That's not exactly the best way to serve your brother in the Lord. <laughs> Get in and bait. You know, I'm better than you, or I'm, I'm greater than you are. They, they didn't exactly have one another's edification in mind. And so Jesus is telling them, look, the Son of Man, He's talking about Himself. I came to save, not to destroy. And the idea is, that's the way you need to live. You live for the benefit of others. Now, he's, remember the context, the little ones, children, refer to believers. And so in Luke 10.19, when he says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost, I think he's talking about preaching the gospel and reaching the unsaved. Here, I don't, it's very similar wording, but a different meaning. He's talking about living for the benefit of believers, I think. We'll see as we go on. In other words, what I mean by that is like if they stray. That's what I think is behind the word lost. But again, either way, if you say, well, I think it's referring to the lost, okay, because he did. Luke ten nineteen definitely makes that clear. So that's, that's not wrong. But I think here he's meaning believers in the sense that they stray and you don't want to cause them to sin, to stray. You don't want to encourage them in their sin or to stray. You want to seek them and save them out of it. Why do I say that? Well, look at verse 12. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep, Jesus is giving them a parable here to explain his meaning. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? Now, I think that's what's behind verse 11. Verse 13. And if he should find it, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones... Again, talking about believers. Believers. Even though it is not the will of your Father that one of these little ones should perish. So you don't want to live for their destruction, you know, so that they perish. You want to live for their salvation. So Jesus is saying, we must humble ourselves 
and take on his mission. Save that which is lost. Don't, in other words, don't be a trap trigger. I don't, I don't want to act in such a way. I don't want to talk in such a way. I don't want to treat somebody in such a way that I might cause them to sin. I mean, this is something we have to be aware of. We have to humble ourselves. Now, how can, how can we be an offense to somebody? Well, I just offered a couple of examples. And by the way, that was the third point, the goal of God, which is to save, <coughs> save the lost. Not only meaning those who are spiritually dead, but also meaning straying Christians. And we've got to share that goal. <clears throat> now, real quickly, because we're about out of time, but how, what, what can we do to cause somebody to sin? Cause somebody to stumble? Well, there are all kinds of things we can do. All kinds of ways that our selfishness manifests. Sometimes... Um, Things that are just wrong, inherently wrong, um, obviously, would, would, would be an offense to other people. Maybe even lead them into sin. Um, I, uh, <clears throat> I used to be in a... Uh, long story, but long story short. You know, I had to skip a lot of it. But I used to be in a supervisory position at work. And, uh, you know, in a position like that, you know, you, you pray as a Christian. You, you want to be, uh, number one, for the glory of God, you want to be effective on your job, in your job. But one, one reason for that is because, number two, uh, you want people, you want to be a good witness to them. You want them to look at you and say, wow, you know, like he's a good employee or whatever, he's a good supervisor or whatever, for the glory of God. You don't, you don't want to set any kind of bad... Example, but um, it, it, it's it, when you're dealing with people, and it's a constant challenge. And, I, and I've always had, um, uh, I know I'm going to say this, and it's going to be a shock to Leslie, but um, you know I've always had patience problems. <laughs> I don't mean you know problem with sick people. I mean I don't I don't have good level of patience. I always had anger issues, right? But, for, you know, and, and, and I'm saying, uh, not, I'm just thankful that for the most part, uh, you know, the Lord really, uh, this is no bad reflection on the Lord when I say the most part, it's just a bad reflection on me. But God just really granted grace in that. But I do remember, just for example, uh, you know, thinking about Jesus here saying, don't cause another one to sin. I, I do remember, uh, I don't even remember the issue, but I was instructing you know, telling a guy to do something one day, and I don't know, he was bucking. He, he, he gave me some problems, and, and uh, I blew up. And we went at it for a few minutes, and I turned around and looked. <laughs> and, and there's this young lady who I, I've said many times over the years, she's, she is definitely, uh, I think, by far and away, the, the best employee there. And I'll tell you why. Uh, because she loves Jesus. She really does, and she works hard, 
and uh, and and she's she's shy and quiet anyway. So I mean, she doesn't talk. She just she doesn't talk. She just works, and and you know, I mean, he and I are just going at it, and I felt like I prevailed. You know what I mean in the discussion there, if you can call it that. But you know, then I turned to walk away, and she's right there. She's standing right there, and of course, trying to pretend like she's minding her own business because she's just that way. I mean, she's not. But I mean, she's just, and and it, and it just, you know, I mean, I don't want to be a bad example to anybody, but I'm just thinking, mm, you know, that that she had to see that. Now she's a strong Christian, but but what if me losing my temper like that uh, just Helped her do the same thing. She thought, well, hey, he's a Christian. He's a professing Christian. He's vocal about it. Everybody knows he's a Christian. And he's a preacher. and uh, It's okay for him to blow up once in a while, I guess. So I guess I can do that too. Maybe she went home and yelled at her husband. I don't know. If, if she did, and I doubt she did, but if she did, see, then what I did was trigger a trap for her. I mean, I, I showed off my selfishness and pride and may have occasioned the same thing in her. And even if that didn't happen, what about this guy that, you know, I'm, tr- I'm trying to make an effort to put him in his place. I mean, he wasn't even a believer. Um, so that's a little bit off topic here, but still, we don't want to cause them to stumble either, do we? We want them to come to Christ. We don't want to put a roadblock in their way. So that the guy says, well, if that's what a Christian is, I don't want any of that. And there are even ways apart from sin. I know that sounds strange, but in, in 1 Corinthians 8, 1 Corinthians 10, Romans 14, Paul talks about liberties that we have. Specifically, drinking wine, eating meat, specifically meat offered to idols. I know, again, that's not an issue today, but it was in the first century. And he's telling the Christians, you're at liberty to do that because an idol is nothing anyway. Unless, Paul says, it's going to cause somebody to stumble. He uses the same word we're using here. If it's going to cause somebody to stumble, in other words, if a weaker brother, a weaker Christian, says, wow, that guy eats meat that was offered to idols. I can do it too. But he is going against his own conscience, conscience because he saw you doing it. Paul's saying, you're, you're causing him to stumble. You're causing him to sin. And that particular thing may not be sin for you, but if he's going against his conscience, it is sin for him, and he's doing it because he saw you do it. You're setting a stumbling block in his way. You're setting a trigger for a trap. You're causing him to sin. So even things that are legal for us, the Scripture tells us we must not do if it's going to cause somebody else to stumble. Why? Verse 14, It is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Now, I've already explained. When he uses the term little ones, I think he's talking just about believers because we are converted And become humbled. We humble ourselves and become like children. And that must be. 
And so now we are the little ones that He's talking about. If we're obedient to come to Christ, humble ourselves, humble ourselves in our dealings with our brothers and sisters in Christ and with the world. And Jesus says you must live this way because it's not the will of the Father that any believer perish. So if you try to cause them to perish, if you try to cause them to sin... You're going against the will of God and the consequences are severe and eternal. So, humility, and that's what it all comes back to, is an essential characteristic for the Christian. We we cannot fool ourselves here. I am not humbled before the Lord if I am not humbled before you. You know what I'm saying? If I can't humble myself before you and esteem you above myself and seek your good and your welfare and your edification, then I may say that I'm the Lord's servant and that I'm humble before Him. But in reality, it's not true because if I were, I'd... I'd be humble before you. You must turn. You must be converted. You must become as a little child, which means you must humble yourself. And those things that would cause somebody else to sin, get to work on cutting them out of your life. And if your eyeball causes you to sin, and I just want to be clear on this, you can poke your eye out. I mean, because this is what we actually had some women from here, a woman, do this years ago from Shreveport, made national news. Um, I can guarantee you this: when she poked her eyes out, it did not take away her sin. That's why I say Jesus is using hyperbole here. He's not saying mutilate your body. Don't. What he's saying is, deal with sin drastically. If you're doing something that causes somebody else to sin, get rid of it. We're here not to destroy, but to save. The reason Jesus came is the reason we're here. His goal, verse 11, His goal must be Our goal. Verse 12 and 13. He goes after those who go astray. We must go after them. We we must live for the benefit and welfare of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We must seek their edification. We must be careful to not cause them to stumble. Would you stand please? Jesus gives a further example of that. This time it's not an illustration. It's instruction in the, uh, in the next verses. And Lord willing, we'll deal with that tonight. Let's pray. This sermon is made available through the ministry of Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our desire is to faithfully proclaim the message of salvation which God has provided in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. 
For more resources and information, please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org. You may use the links there to contact us or write us at Fillmore Baptist Church, 6304 Highway 80, Princeton, Louisiana, 71067.